Luke chapter 2. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 857. Luke 2, and kids can head on to Children's Church. Luke 2, today we come to our final Advent sermon, studying Luke's, Luke 1 and 2. We're going to be looking at Simeon. And let's pray before we read God's word. Father in heaven, we pray for your help. Lord, open our eyes now that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Uh, Lord, please help me, give me grace by your spirit to speak as when speaking the very oracles of God. Uh, Lord, give us your Holy Spirit's gifts now. Give us conviction, repentance, faith, encouragement, transformation. Work through this time. We pray especially for those who might not know you. Use this time to bring us to saving faith in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Luke 2, follow along as I read verses 22 through 35. Luke 22 through 35. This is God's word. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, speaking of Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. May God give us ears to hear his word. In recent years, it's become popular to compile what's known as a bucket list. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the idea of a bucket list before. Basically everybody. The concept of the bucket list was made popular by a 2007 movie starring Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. In this movie, the two main characters, they're these old codgers, and they get diagnosed with terminal cancer. But instead of dying quietly and miserably, they put together this list of wild things they'd like to do before they die. And then they go do them. And this list includes things like skydiving, visiting the pyramids, climbing the Himalayas, now, the bucket list, it might be a funny movie. I've never actually seen it. But the only problem is it's absolutely nothing like real life. In real life, when people think they're about to die, they don't make plans to jump out of airplanes or climb the Himalayas. Instead, they're usually so gripped by pain, regret, fear, depression, that it takes everything in them to just get out of bed in the morning. Even non-Christians recognize this about the bucket list movie and the entire concept of the bucket list. Roger Ebert, who suffered from cancer and then eventually died from cancer, wrote this about the bucket list movie. 
He said, the bucket list is a movie about two old codgers who are nothing like people, both suffering from cancer that is nothing like cancer, and setting off on adventures that are nothing like possible. I urgently advise hospitals, do not make the DVD available to your patients. I've had cancer, and believe me, during convalescence after surgery, the last item on your bucket list is climbing a Himalaya. Your list is more likely to be topped by keeping down a full meal, keeping your energy up in the afternoon, letting your loved ones know that you love them, and convincing the doc your report of pain is real and not merely disguising your desire to become a drug addict. Sadly, this entire fantasy of spending your last days going on adventures and living wildly is a fantasy. It's a fantasy not grounded in reality. Again, the vast majority of people, when they contemplate their demise, are gripped with pain, fear, regret. And while that might not sell Hollywood movies, that's simply the world in which we live. There is, however, something that the bucket list movie and the bucket list idea gets right. And that's this longing we all have deep down to face death with joyful confidence. Whoever you are, I am sure this is true of you. If you knew that your death were right around the corner, I'm almost certain that you'd like to face that with confidence as a victor. Not gripped with terror, not overcome by regret, not weighed down by guilt, but living with confidence and dying as a victor. That's how you want to face death, isn't it? And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. It is possible to face death that way. It's possible to die with joyful confidence, as we're going to see what Simeon do here in Luke 2. But the only way that is possible is if you embrace Jesus as God's Messiah. It has everything, you, it has everything to do with how you respond to Jesus. Therefore, my job as a preacher of God's word is to prepare you to meet death with joyful confidence by trusting in Jesus. Well, it's with this that we come to our third and final Advent sermon for 2021. For the month of December here, we've spent three separate sermons meditating on the birth of Jesus, coming both from Luke chapter 1 and 2. The birth of Jesus is just too wonderful, too important to think about just one day a year. Just to remind you of where we've been, two weeks ago we looked at the Virgin Mary and how she was chosen to be the mother of God's Messiah, that longed-for Redeemer, that great prophet, priest, and king that God had been promising ever since Adam and Eve fell, He's finally coming, and young Mary has the privilege of giving birth to him. Last week, we looked at another of these first witnesses to Jesus' birth, Zechariah. And last week, we considered Zechariah's response to Jesus. And remember what it was? Joy. Incredible, indescribable joy. And what I tried to persuade you of last week is that that same joy that Zechariah experienced, that's available to you if you too will trust in Jesus. Well, all this brings us to our last character here from Luke 1 and 2, old Simeon. Simeon is a model in so many ways, not least of which is how to be prepared for death and for what comes next. And I think he's a wonderful character to consider on this Christmas Sunday. Well, turning now to Luke 2, the first truth I'd like you to consider with me from these verses is that Jesus obeyed God's law even from infancy. This is the clear emphasis of verses 22 through 24, how Jesus obeyed, obeyed God's law even from infancy. Now begin in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, again talking about Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a pair, pardon me, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
Now, to explain what's going on here, Jesus' parents are obeying two different Old Testament laws. First, in Leviticus 12, it's said that after a woman gives birth to a son, 40 days later, she's to go to the temple and to go through this cleansing rite. She was, go to, she was to go to the temple, present herself to the Lord, and then to make a sacrifice. This indicates that Jesus is 40 days old when this is taking place. The second law that they're obeying here is Exodus 13. And in Exodus 13, it tells us that a woman's firstborn child is uniquely dedicated to the Lord. All children were precious gifts from God, but the firstborn was to be a perpetual reminder that God had blessed her and given her children. And again, we see Jesus, pardon me, we see Mary performing both of these laws here in the temple. What we're to see here is that even from his infancy, Jesus obeys God. Uh, from even before he's able to really do much of anything, he's conforming to Old Testament law. And it's interesting, especially in Luke, to see that this is a regular theme. Jesus is obedient, not just as an adult, but from the very beginning. So, for instance, a couple of verses earlier in Luke 2.21, we see there Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. That too is an Old Testament law. Later on in this same chapter, we're going to see the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple at Passover, and that's when he gets lost and his parents can't find him, and then they find him discussing with the teachers of the law. Remember that? That's also here. So this is a major theme, especially in Luke. Jesus carefully, meticulously obeying God's law. Now, all of this begs the question, why? Why does the Bible contain these details? I mean, there's a lot we'd like to know about Jesus' childhood that we're not told. For instance, we're never told when Jesus took his first bath. We're never told when he got his first haircut. We never are told what kind of games he played with his friends. Why these details then about Jesus obeying the law even from childhood? Well, there are three reasons for this. Let me share them quickly. Three reasons. First, Jesus obeyed, even from infancy, to give children an example to follow. Did you know that? Jesus obeyed even from infancy to give children an example to follow. Now, certainly Jesus is more than a mere example. He is our suffering Savior. He is our exalted Lord. And the reason he came down from heaven was to save his people from their sins. However, in addition to that, Jesus' life is also an example, an example Christians should emulate. It's just like 1 Peter 1.21 says, Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, when we realize that, we come to understand why these accounts of Jesus obeying as a child are included in the Bible. It's so that children can look to Jesus as a godly example. If you can hear my voice and you're, say, 6 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, realize Jesus ought to be your ultimate role model in how he honored his parents, in how he memorized God's word, in how he followed all of God's commandments. Make Jesus your ultimate role model. It's just like we sing in one of our famous uh, Christmas carols, one that we really love around here, once in Royal David City. We sing this, Jesus is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was weak, little weak and helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew. Quickly, here's a second reason why Jesus obeyed, even from infancy. And that's to show us the links to which we should give up our rights so that others can hear the gospel. To show us the links to which we should go to give up our rights so that others can hear the gospel. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, in one sense, Jesus did not need to obey God's law. I mean, he's already infinite God. He's already perfect and righteous in every way. And yet, infinite God comes down and takes on human flesh and blood. More than that, he submits himself to this comprehensive Mosaic law with all of its restrictions. 
Restrictions about what you can eat and drink, restrictions about what kind of clothing you can wear, what you can do on the Sabbath, all these what we consider really detailed and wild restrictions, Jesus gladly submits to them. And part of the reason he does this is to serve as an example of how we give up our rights so that others can hear the gospel. This is Paul's main point in Philippians 2.5, a passage we've memorized around here. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In all your interactions with other people, you should be asking the question, what rights can I give up to serve this other person? What privileges can I forsake to love this other person, especially if it increases their likelihood that they're going to listen to the gospel? Now, we don't like this as Americans. We're people of, you know, rights. We want this, you know. We'll lay down our lives to defend our rights. But this is where becoming a Christian cuts against what it means to be an American. We give up our rights to serve others, especially if that means they might listen to the gospel. So, for instance, I might be free in Christ to listen to this or that music. I might be free in Christ to wear this or that clothing. But if by not eating this, not wearing this or that clothing, this person might listen to the gospel that could save their soul, I ought to gladly do that following Jesus' example of giving up my rights. Am I making sense? Well, there's a third and final reason why Jesus obeyed from infancy, and this is really the most important of the three. It's so that he would live the righteous life we fail to live. So that he would live the righteous life we fail to live. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus was born as a baby in the first place? I mean, he could have descended out of the sky as an adult. You know, just this 33-year-old man come down, die on the cross, rise again, ascend back to heaven. Why did he become a baby? And then a toddler, and then a teenager, and then a young man. Why? Well, the Bible's answer to that is that he's obeying for us. He's obeying for us. He's, in a way, fighting our battles in our place. We disobeyed as toddlers, he's obedient as a toddler in our place. We disobeyed as children, he's obedient as a child in our place. We disobey as teenagers, he obeys as a teenager in our place. We disobey as adults, he's obedient as an adult in our place. In every stage of life where we fail, he's obedient for us. And again, he did that so that his righteous life could be credited to our account when we believe. Let me repeat that. He obeyed in all these different stages of life so that his righteous account could be credited to us when we believe. It's what's called the doctrine of justification. Listen to Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, this is talking about Adam, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, and this is talking about Jesus, the many are made righteous. Jesus not only dies the death we deserve to die, but he lives the life we should have lived. And he did that so that when you trust in Jesus, this glorious exchange takes place. He takes your sin, you get his righteousness. So that now when God looks at you, if your faith is in Jesus, he does not see you in all your sins. He sees Jesus' righteous life covering you, making you righteous and clean in God's sight. And that's the major reason why Jesus obeyed God's law, even from infancy. Well, coming back to Luke 2, there's a second truth I'd like you to consider with me. And that's how Jesus delivers believers from all fear of death. We'll see that in verses 25 through 33. 
Now, Jesus delivers believers from all fear of death. Now, look at verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, here we're introduced to this man named Simeon. This is the only time he appears in the Bible. And actually, everything we know about him is included in these few verses. First, it says he's righteous and devout. What that means, he's a true man of God. He's trusting in the Lord, trying to obey God's laws. And keep in mind that these were the days of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, when Judaism had really become corrupt and legalistic. Uh, The temple had become a den of thieves. I mean, these were not good days for healthy spirituality. And yet God always had a remnant, and in that godly remnant was Simeon. Another thing it says about Simeon, it says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that's technical terminology for awaiting the Messiah. He's on the lookout for that great prophet, priest, and king that we've talked about so much in recent weeks. And you'll notice this is before the cross, which reminds us that people are saved even before the cross by grace through faith in Jesus. They're just looking forward to him. The last thing this passage tells us about Simeon is that he had received this unique promise about his death. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You think about it, in one sense, his bucket list had been written for him by God. And his bucket list had one item on it. He would not die until he saw the Messiah, the Christ. That's Simeon. Now pick up in verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Now as we can see, old Simeon, it just so happens that he's in the temple at the right time to run into Jesus. And it just so happens that his parents are there performing for him the rituals that I mentioned earlier. So what does he do? He takes little baby Jesus up in his arms and he says a blessing over him. Now, a couple of things I want you to consider about this event. First, see here God's providential orchestration of this meeting. God's providential orchestration of this meeting. I mean, think of how easily this could have not happened. How easily they could have missed one another. For this meeting to work, Jesus and Simeon, they need to be in the exact same place at the exact same time. An hour earlier, an hour later, it wouldn't have happened. You know, if Simeon had misplaced his sandals... Uh, If Joseph wanted another sandwich at lunch, uh, this meeting wouldn't have happened. What's more, realize the temple was an absolutely huge area. I mean, it was bigger than Walmart, packed with people all the time. So even if they had been in the right place at the right time, they could easily have missed one another. However, the Lord had made a promise to Simeon, and God always keeps his promises. So to ensure that old Simeon sees baby Jesus before he dies, God makes this happen. He providentially brings all the details together so that this would happen. I think that illustrates for us the degree to which God controls seemingly insignificant events. Well, what Simeon says about baby Jesus is what's most important for us here. Look at verse 32. He says, Jesus will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, both of these concepts come from the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah, in the passage Kevin read earlier, it predicted that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. 
Yes, he's the king of the Jews. He will be Jewish. He'll rule over the Jews. But at the same time, he will save Jews, people from all these Jewish nations, and eventually the, the, the Gentiles will worship him. Simeon knows that and worships God for that here. Additionally, it says he'll be a glory to your people Israel. It is interesting to ponder how he will both have a unique role in Israel and yet also a role for the Gentiles. And you think about it, at this point in Jewish history, the Jews did not have a king. Uh, Herod's ruling over Palestine. He's a corrupt, wicked man. But Simeon looks beyond that to this day when Jesus will be the king of the Jews, reigning on David's throne forever. Simeon can somehow see all of that and says this about the little baby he's got in his hands. In light of these predictions, it's no surprise that verse 33 says this. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I mean, just put yourself in their shoes. You're there with your little baby, and all of a sudden this stranger comes up, says, can I hold your baby? And you're like, I guess so. And he predicts that your baby is going to be the unchallenged king of the entire universe. That'd be kind of unexpected. Now, for our purposes, what I want you to notice here is the joyful confidence that Simeon has in his approaching death. Did you pick that up? joyful confidence. He's not terrified. He's not gripped with anxiety and regret, but he embraces death as a joyful release. Look at verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Would you like to meet death that way? You know, maybe I told you, and hopefully this doesn't happen, but maybe I knew you were going to die this afternoon at four o'clock. Would you like to anticipate that with, Lord, Now I can meet death. Lord, I'm ready to go. Lord, I am prepared because I've seen your salvation. Would you like to meet death that way? I know I would. It's interesting to consider that phrase, letting your servant depart in peace there in 29. That identical phraseology is used elsewhere in the Bible of the release of slaves. And the idea Simeon is uh, communicating seems to be this. I've been a slave to death, sin, and the devil all my life long. All my life long, I have been a slave to the law of sin and death. But now, my death, it will be my release. It will be my freedom from slavery. And again, you look at death that way, no no surprise that he's joyful. Now, Simeon is certainly not the only character in the Bible who meets death with joyful confidence. This comes up again and again and again. Our Bible heroes, they don't look at death as this terrifying experience that you do anything possible to avoid, but you resign yourself to it as the passing over to another world. We see this all over the place with Jacob, with Samson, especially in the Psalms. Look up several of the Psalms, Psalm 16 in particular, and the way in which David anticipates rejoicing in the Lord's presence forever. But maybe the most famous account of this is in Philippians 1. Listen to Philippians 1.21 and notice Paul's perspective on death. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Wouldn't you like to look at death that way? Lord, I'm ready to go. Lord, I am ready to die in peace. Lord, I'm not terrified by death because it's simply waking up in a new world. Would you like to look at death that way? This is one area where our world has absolutely nothing to offer us. Our our world can teach us many things and perform many services that we appreciate, but what they cannot do is prepare us for death. 
This is why our world does absolutely everything that it can to try to delay death as long as possible, try to hide aging. You notice this with our celebrities in particular. As they get older, they seem to disappear from public view. I've often thought if I could invent some sort of snake oil that kept people looking like they were teenagers into their 80s, I'd be a billionaire overnight. And so often, our celebrities, they try to portray this view of uh, just vitality and confidence and, and, and joy. You, you think of people like Oprah Winfrey, Jeff Bezos, Tom Hanks. Again, they try to come across as so cool, calm, collected, but I think that's just their TV face. When they contemplate their own demise, when they lie in bed staring at the ceiling thinking about death, they're terrified. They're enslaved to fear of death because they know that deep down there's something coming next that they're not ready for. Ask yourself, do you fear death? And what comes next? Do you fear death and what comes next? When you lie in bed and contemplate, one day I'm not going to wake up. When you attend a funeral and realize one day I'm going to be in that casket. When you look at a tombstone and realize one day I'm going to be six feet under. Does that grip you with terror and fear? Realize if there is fear in your heart over death, it's because you know that something more is coming. If death were all, if death really were just the cessation of our existence, there wouldn't be any fear there. You know, if it would be like going to sleep, nobody really fears going to sleep. You just close your eyes and you're done. Why then are we gripped with this anxiety, this fear of death? And I've been, have you ever been there at somebody's deathbed? I've been there and I've seen people literally shaking, not so much with the pain they're experiencing, but because they're terrified of death. Where does that come from? Well, I'll tell you why this is the case. It's because, again, deep down we know there's something more coming. And this is why people of every nationality, every per political persuasion, every uh, ethnicity, we all have this innate fear of death. It's because deep down we know there's more coming and we're not ready for that. Let me just say, if you are not afraid of death and you're not a Christian, then you really should be afraid. If you're a Christian, that's one thing. Obviously, our hope is in Jesus, and he frees us from fear of death. But if your hope is not in Jesus, you really ought to fear death because you're not ready for what's coming next. You're going to stand before God and give an account for your life. Now, all of this forces us to ask the question, how? How can we be prepared for death? How can we be ready for death? How can we look at it not as the terrifying loss of everything, but entering into a world of joy? Well, Simeon gives us our answer. Look at verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people of Israel. You see, why was Simeon prepared for death? He was prepared for death because he had embraced Jesus as God's Messiah. He'd embraced Jesus as God's king of the universe, and therefore any trace of fear of death was gone. Matthew Henry said it well in his typical brief way when he wrote this. Those who have welcomed Christ may welcome death. You want to be ready for death? You want that joyful confidence, that clean conscience that enables you to die with joy? Trust Jesus. Embrace him. Or old J.C. Ryle, what can deliver us from that fear of death, which so many are in bondage? What can take away the sting of death? It's not enough to be weary of pain and sickness and simply ready for a change. We must have something more than this if we desire to depart in real peace. 
there is but one answer, nothing but faith. Faith laying firm hold on an unseen Savior. Faith resting on the premise of an unseen God. Faith and faith only can enable a person to look death in the face and say, I depart in peace. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we are delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. In fact, there's nowhere we'd rather you be at 1045 on a Sunday morning than here with us, hearing God's word, singing God's praises. Maybe consider coming by every Sunday, make some new friends, get some cheap coffee, and hopefully we'll explain to you what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian, really ask yourself, do you fear your inevitable death? You might not want to admit it, you might uh, try to pretend things are otherwise, but do you fear your inevitable death? Realize that's simply human nature. Without an assurance that our sins are forgiven, without a clean conscience, without confidence that we're reconciled to our Creator, what other choice do we have than to fear death? But if you've understood anything that I've said this morning, it does not need to be that way. It does not need to be that way. You do not need to die with utter fear, utter terror. You can, like Simeon, die with joyful confidence, but again, it all comes back to your response to Jesus the Messiah. The Bible tells us that we've all been made to know God, to have a relationship with him, uh, to glorify him in all of life. That's why we exist. And yet the Bible goes on to tell us that we've all sinned and rebelled against God, that we've broken his laws. We do this either flagrantly, like the prodigal son, or we do it sort of passively, just ignoring God, trying to live as if God does not exist. But either way, what are we doing? We're doing the same thing. We're saying that something other than God is better than God. We're saying, thank you, God, but I really don't need your help in life. We're all guilty of that. Now, under those circumstances, God could have condemned us all for our sins. He could have said, you, you don't want me? Be eternally lost. You don't want to have anything to do with me? You don't have to. Goodbye, forever. But the glorious message of the gospel is he didn't. In his incredible love, God the Father sent God the Son down to earth. God the Son, he's born as a little baby named Jesus. We've been talking about him all morning. He grows up and lives the perfect life we should have lived. And then he dies on the cross. And why is he dying on the cross? He's dying on the cross to bear the judgment our sins deserve. He's punished in our place, the righteous suffering in place of the righteous, so that we might be reconciled to God. Three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you this morning is true. And now in response, Jesus is calling you, repent or turn from your sin and embrace the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sin. Stop running from God. Stop trying to live without him. Stop trying to live your own way. Rely on Jesus' death and resurrection and be forever reconciled to your creator. That's the gospel. And before we go any further, I beg you to do that right now. If you've never put your hope in Jesus, do it now. If you've never come to the point where you realize, you know, I've been running from God, I'm terrified of death, I'm terrified of what comes next, right now in your heart, turn from your sin, rely on the Lord Jesus, and be forever forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God, and start enjoying that relationship with God you were created for. That is the only way you can be prepared for death and for what comes next. That is the only way you can embrace your inevitable death, not with anxiety, not with terror, not with regret, but with joyful confidence like old Simeon. So trust Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out.
But trust Jesus today as your only Lord and Savior, and today be prepared for death. One final thought on this point. Recognize one of the most important roles the local church has is to prepare people for death. Uh, I've been made very aware of this in recent weeks. But one of the most important roles the local church has is to prepare people for death. Far more important than an exciting youth group, far more important than a softball team, far more important than an exciting praise band or spacious parking lots or a beautiful playground or wonderful bathrooms is preparing people for judgment day. If a church fails to do that, it fails utterly. Realize TV will not prepare you for death. Facebook will not prepare you for death. Movies, video games will not prepare you for death. A college degree will not prepare you for death. Watching the NFL will not prepare you for death. Doctors, medicines, they cannot prepare you for death. The government certainly is not going to prepare you for death. This is a ministry totally unique to the local church. Therefore, if you desire to be prepared for death and for what comes next, the wisest thing you can do is to join a local church where people know the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus, and are preparing one another for death. It's no exaggeration. Death is coming sooner or later for all of us, and for some of us, it will be sooner rather than later. Therefore, it's only wise, it's only smart to be prepared. And again, a large portion of being prepared for death is to immerse yourself in a local church where people love one another, they're speaking the promises of the gospel to one another, and preparing one another to stand before God. Praise God, Jesus delivers believers from all fear of death. But is that true for you? Is that your experience? Quickly, one final point from this passage. Consider with me finally how Jesus reveals people's true colors. This is the theme of verses 34 and 35, how Jesus reveals people's true colors. Now in verse 34, we read this, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, as you can see, after making a few statements about Jesus' identity, Simeon then turns to addressing Mary, and he makes some prophecies about what Jesus will do and what Mary will experience. Now, admittedly, the grammar here is complicated, even in English. It doesn't really come out that clearly, but we can say a couple of things for sure. First, it says he's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That seems to be further explained by the clause, he will be a sign that will be opposed so that the hearts of many will be revealed. When you pull this together, what it seems to be saying is that Jesus will have a ministry of forcing people to take sides. People won't be able to remain neutral in his presence. They won't be able to remain apathetic. His life, his teaching, his ministry will be so confrontational that people will be forced to decide. Will they accept him or will they reject him? Will they embrace him or will they discard him? But Jesus' life and ministry will be such that they can't remain on the sidelines. William Hendrickson explains this clearly when he writes this. In essence, Simeon told Mary that her child would become the great divider. Not, however, that events would simply turn out that way, but that in God's plan it had been so decided. Literally what he says is, mark well, this child is set for the falling and rising of many in Israel. In other words, a person's relation or attitude toward Jesus would be absolutely decisive as of his eternal destiny. Some will reject him, Others will, by grace, accept him. 
The former will fall, that is, they will, unless they repent, be excluded from the kingdom. The latter will rise, that is, they will be welcomed to the, to the kingdom and its feast. Now, it's interesting, when you, when you read the Gospels, this comes up again and again and again in Jesus' life and ministry. He forces people to come out of the darkness and to decide. He's forcing people to count the costs, to respond. Who do you say that I am? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38. Pardon me, 1034. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake find it. You see, this is simply the nature of Jesus' person and work. And even today, when people come in contact with the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, they must respond. They cannot remain indifferent and in the dark. People either love him or hate him. They're attracted to him or repelled away from him. It's the exact same Jesus, but two totally different responses. You think about it, you see this everywhere in the Gospels, be it Peter or Judas. Herod or Nicodemus, he's forcing people, he, he won't let them just remain indifferent and apathetic. He's pressing them, pressing them. Who do you say that I am? And he presses them until they say, Jesus, get away from me. Or they say, Lord, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And realize Jesus is doing the same exact thing today. He's doing the exact, same exact thing right now in your life. He's not content to leave you indifferent and apathetic. He's coming after you. He's pursuing you. He's confronting you and pushing you until you say, Jesus, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Or you cast yourself on him as the only hope for your soul. How do you find yourself responding to Jesus? How do you respond to the Jesus that we see in the Bible? How do you find yourself responding to Jesus when he speaks to you through the Bible? When your life is confronted and he calls you to repent, how do you respond? I think this is especially the case when you come across something in Scripture you don't like. You know, it's easy to love Jesus when he agrees with you, but if you only agree with Jesus when he agrees with you, you don't actually believe in Jesus. You just believe in yourself. But when Jesus confronts you and calls you to change and you find yourself thinking, Lord, this is going to be incredibly hard, but by the grace of God, help me to change. That's a good sign. But how do you find yourself responding to Jesus? I think we actually should try to emulate this same approach in our preaching and teaching. Not to be unnecessarily offensive, of course not, that's foolish, but to so press the Bible onto people that they're forced to respond. That they walk out of here having encountered the real Jesus and either rejecting him more harshly or embracing him more thoroughly. But what we don't want to do is to leave people confused, mystified, comfortable in their sins, not realizing they teeter on the brink of hell. Well, the other thing that Simeon prophesies here is the pain Mary will experience. I think that's what the parenthetical phrase in verse 35 is talking about. He says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Well, Mary probably didn't make full sense of this at the time. She would eventually suffer greatly due to what she saw happen to Jesus. The Gospels are clear about this. She would be there to see her son mocked and attacked and slandered. 
She would be there to see her son arrested and scourged and condemned. She would see her firstborn son hanging naked on that cross, suffering in the most excruciating way possible. And the Gospels are emphatic that she would be there to witness his death. And just imagine that as a parent. I mean, that would, that's horrific. You'd much rather, rather yourself be on that cross. But obviously it couldn't be Mary dying for her sins. Only Jesus could die for her sins. But nonetheless, what grief would this bring into Mary's heart? Simeon sees all of that and predicts that here even as he holds baby Jesus in his hands. Jesus reveals people's true colors. So what's Jesus revealing about you this morning? How are you responding to Jesus? Well, to wrap up our time this morning, I bring you back to where we began. In recent years, it's become very popular to compile bucket lists, these wild lists of adventures we want to go on, often include skydiving, climbing mountains, that sort of thing. And the thinking is that since we only go around once, we should try and grab as much fun as possible before we check out. Well, if we've learned anything from our study this morning, in reality, there's only one thing you should have on your bucket list. Only one thing. And that's embracing Jesus with repentant faith. Embracing Jesus is the only way you'll face death with joyful confidence. Embracing Jesus is the only way you'll experience death as a victor and not shaking with terror like I've seen. Embracing Jesus is the only way to die without regret, without remorse, in peace, ready to meet your maker. Only by embracing Jesus. So in conclusion, all I'll ask you is this. Are you prepared for death and for what comes next? Are you prepared for death and for what comes next? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your servant Simeon, for his godly life, his prophecies, his example. Thank you even more so for your son Jesus, our great God and Savior, and for the way that he saves his people from their sins. Please, Lord, work in all of our hearts. Give us all trust in him, confidence in him, assurance of sins forgiven and guilt taken away. And please give us this joyful confidence that Simeon experiences in this passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.